Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Um, good afternoon, everybody, um, and welcome. Uh, my name uh, is Charlie Banner. Welcome to the fourth episode of We Got Planning News for You, our, our hopefully informative but also informal and light-hearted take on recent events in the planning world. Uh, by Shatter's special request, it's the Tottenham Hotspur special-themed episode today. More on that later. Um, thank you all for joining us, um, whether you're doing so for the first time or as a regular. Uh, as the regulars among you will appreciate, um, you can provide questions or comments in the Q&A function. Um, just to be clear, that's the Q&A box, not the chat function. Um, so please do keep uh, any questions and comments coming. We'll hugely welcome that. As usual, we've got a Q&A thread already set up on our LinkedIn page, which please follow. Um, so any points we don't deal with uh, during the show, uh, we'll follow up there and please do post them. Um, as you know by now, this is a free show, but can we reiterate our usual encouragement to you to uh, make a donation to the NHS COVID-19 Appeals Just Giving page or alternatively a, a charity of your choice. Um, I've lost tra track, uh, to be honest, of goodness knows um, what week number it, it is of, of lockdown, uh, but at least there are some signs of uh, encouragement. And I think I might just pop to my uh, garden centre later on. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, now it's time to introduce the panel without further ado can i ask each of you to say in turn who you are um where you are uh, and what you're drinking uh, this evening starting with you mary good afternoon i'm mary cook from town legal and i'm in wandsworth drinking a gin and tonic cheers i'm sasha white i'm in oxfordshire and i am drinking pure vodka looking at people wearing spurs clothes <laughs> uh i i am paul tucker i'm currently with the rebel alliance as you can see behind me and i'm drinking malbec and i'm chris young and i'm from number five chambers and as you can see i'm in the library at hogwarts castle uh and this week i am mostly drinking cider Ah, <laughs> Actually, that, uh, I'm in London, so it's it's Camden Hells for me. I confess, I did feel a little bit sheepish buying uh, cans of lager from the Tesco's opposite the Royal Courts of Justice. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't quite as bad as when the week before my wedding, my now wife had the idea of buying every guest to our wedding a, a lottery ticket. And so off I went to the same Tesco, bang opposite the Royal Courts, to buy 110 lottery tickets, praying that a High Court judge wouldn't walk in. I think I had a really serious uh, gambling problem. Uh, thank you, I didn't. Um, we're lucky to have a special guest today, um, Simon Gallagher, Director of Planning at MHCLG, uh, a particularly timing given the Ministry's multiple announcements yesterday on planning in the coronavirus era. Simon, a huge thank you for joining us in a particularly quiet week for you. Um, where are you and, and what are you drinking this evening? 
So hi everybody, I'm Simon Gallagher, as Charlie says, I'm in South London at the moment and I have a bottle of Lervenbrow, but I've realised I've come up into my attic room without a bit, uh, my uh, bottle opener, so <laughs> if I disappear from the screen at the moment, you know, failure to plan. We don't want you to break a tooth live on air, <laughs> now is not a time to do that. Um, well, we'll be doing an interview with Simon as we do with all our guests in the second half of the show, uh, but Simon, as I said to you uh, before we started, please do chip in at any stage in relation to any of the other matters we're discussing. Uh, it'd be great to have your input at any stage to the extent that in your position you feel able to comment. Um, finally, the more observant of you may now have noticed uh, uh, my and Paul's Spurs theme headgear uh, and the other Spurs themes. Uh, nothing to do with trying to conceal the lockdown here. Some would say I had lockdown here before the lockdown. Um, <laughs> the fact that lifelong Aguna Sasha was nominated last week to wear a Spurs shirt if we raised a lot of money for their chess. Sasha, what happened? I, I decided to trump trump chris and i make sure the donation was enhanced by me staying true to my colors and also i didn't think it would help the webinar if i died on air which i probably would do if the cops were very close to my arm so instead i've got a cannon <laughs> we'll save that for next week <laughs> well honestly, our, our first topic um this week as usual is court case of the week and and saturn what's caught your attention in the planning court Yes, well, I was going to talk, just to show how up-to-date we are, I'm going to talk about a decision from Monday, and this is on the very topical subject of neighbourhood plans. And this is an interesting case for two fundamental reasons, because it involved a challenge to a neighbourhood plan and the decision of Mendip District Council, effectively, to go to referendum on the Norton and Philip Parish Council neighbourhood plan. And I know Norton St Philip well because I promoted unsuccessfully a housing site in 2001. They're a chicken factory, but I was unsuccessful. But anyway, they brought forward a neighbourhood plan and the examiner recommended that it be effectively go to referendum. Now, that was of concern to a developer who owned various pieces of land throughout the village and which two of the sites that they had an interest in were identified as local green space. Now, all of us wrestle with the question of powers 99 and 100 of the MPPF and this utilisation of local green space, which there are various views about it. Some people obviously see it as a fundamental mechanism for stopping development, hence the very topical use of the word in 100C about not an extensive tract of land and the questions of what that actually entails. And the other criterion, power 100, is whether it's in reasonable close proximity to the community it serves and whether it's demonstrably special to a local community. Well, the fundamental gist of this case is the developer was concerned that effectively the examiner hadn't really properly applied or understood the criteria of the MPPF relating to local green space. Um, it also is interesting because a second element is as the claimant sought interim relief, one of the things that troubles us all and is very noteworthy for our audience, of course, is the provisions of Section 61N relating to neighbourhood plans and the realisation effectively that your challenge has to be salami sliced, so to speak, and you mm. can't lie and wait for the final plan to be made, but you need to get the appropriate time. It's interesting in this case that the claimant went at the interim stage to stop prior to the final determination of the matter to stop the matter, the neighbourhood plan going to referendum, and they were successful in that. But at the substantive hearing, effectively what 
the judge, Mrs. Justice Lang, had to decide was whether the examiner had properly considered the criteria in national guidance relating to green spaces. And I think what's of interest, and I want to bring to our audience's attention, is the fundamental question about basic conditions and, of course, the distinction from basic conditions to whether a plan is sound and the local plan distinction. Secondly, that an examiner is required to be cognizant and aware of the MPPF and national guidance. And in this case, the judge concluded that they were. And thirdly, it is interesting that the conclusion of the judge was effectively that 100, power 100 I've referred to in the three criteria, is not necessarily an exhaustive list. And that is addressed at power 156, which is quite interesting. So I just... I do think for those, all of our audience involved in neighbourhood plans, I do think it is a very succinct and accurate summary of the law that currently applies to neighbourhood plans. And secondly, it's very relevant for the application uh, of local green spaces and neighbourhood plans. Paul, what's your take on this? Is, is for once you get to talk about a case you've neither won or lost? Yeah, the, the problem with that, um, to be honest, Charlie, is that it's a case which relies upon a case that I lost as recently wow. as 2014, and it still stings. Uh, it's a case called BDW Holdings, where Chris and I uh, were involved in part two, and it's sufficiently recent that the inquiry took place that uh, Mr Justice Holgate was involved as one of the advocates. Mm -hmm. um, not as a judge, when he was before a judge, obviously. Um, no, it's stinging because uh, it's, it brings out the dichotomy between what, how you assess a neighbourhood plan and the extent to which the examiner is really charged with, with assessing it. Um, the, the BW Holdings case said that it's a light touch and all the examiner's doing is checking the basic conditions. Uh, and we're always told that you're meant to just do it on a very rapid, very light touch basis because these were plans meant to be tucked in after local plans have been adopted. The problem is all too often they're adopted before and promoted before local plans are adopted. They're a stopgap measure, often to try and uh, frustrate development. Um, and uh, because of the light touch, you end up with frustratingly difficult policies which haven't been examined with the same rigour as you would in local plans. And yet Mrs Justice Lang in this case said that she specifically relied upon the expertise of the examiner uh, in concluding that, it, that the job had been done properly whilst also endorsing that the job wasn't a particularly irksome one. Um, it's problematical for a whole host of reasons. For example, uh, an authority can choose its its own tribunal, and I, that's always sort uh, I thought somewhat problematical. But it's an interesting case. Thanks, Paul. And Hashi uh, Mohammed, who who was the advocate in that case, has uh, updated us saying that permission to appeal has been refused uh, by Mr. Justice Lang, uh, and that uh, his clients are yet to hear from the claimant whether they're going to the court of appeal. So uh, thanks for Hashi for that. Hashi, but that's that. a surprise. We're all staggered by that decision. <laughs> um, next up, um, the Secretary of State or PINs uh, decision of the week. And Chris, um, for a change, uh, you've got a DCO decision for us. Yeah, I have a uh, development consent order. Can I just say about the neighbourhood plans? And yep. uh, that case reveals just how little scrutiny there is of neighbourhood plans. Just saying, Simon. Just <laughs> saying. Okay. But um, in terms of, you know, my views on that. Um, in okay, terms of the DCO, really interesting case this week. Now, a lot of DCOs are sometimes characterised, perhaps unfairly, as a little bit dull, okay? They're about a road or a bridge, and a bridge and a road, or something like that. But this one is, I think, a very significant step towards a slightly more exciting DCO. This is about a strategic rail freight terminal in the West Midlands, in the Greenbelt, 
couple of my favorite topics there so you might have to stop me uh after the first hour um and it was an application by four ashes limited uh and uh it was on greenbelt land 300 hectare proposal on greenbelt land the inspector was paul singleton and mr singleton uh is very popular in the west midlands with the development industry he came down and did an appeal um last year uh for uh, 800 houses for Bloors, where we were successful in securing a full cost award against anthony creed uh, sorry i mean against birmingham city council <laughs> for whom anthony was acting um but here mr singleton again recommended approval inappropriate development obviously in the green belt uh, there was green infrastructure but he didn't think that made much of a difference to mitigate the impact but he found very special circumstances now obviously as, as listeners will know, viewers will know, there is uh, national planning policy statements that support many infrastructure projects. And here, this proposal benefited from such a statement. So um, they knew that there was national support for this, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion um, by any means. First of all, they had to prove the need and a gap in the network uh, in the West Midlands. There's quite a bit to, towards the east uh, Hams Hall and Birch Coppice, but um, this was a gap effectively along the M5 and M6 areas and uh, in the South Staffordshire Black Country area. And that was a major part of their case. But there was, interestingly, an alternative site. There was a whole assessment of alternative sites. Many were ruled out because they weren't big enough. 300 hectares wasn't the threshold. They set the threshold at 60 hectares. But um, most of the urban conurbation of the West Midlands was unsuitable for obvious reasons. You can't find a site that size. But what um, was available was a site outside the Greenbelt, just up the M6, near the railway line, near Penkridge. And uh, therefore, they had to overcome that to win this order. And they did that by demonstrating that site would have caused significant landscape and visual harm. So really interesting that you can uh, overcome the difficulties of locating in the Greenbelt on the basis of the Secretary of State agreeing that landscape and amenity issues may be greater on non-Greenbelt sites. Um, there's uh, another aspect to, to this though, which is that um, they did ask for warehousing before the rail connection was in, and that had been, has been unsuccessful elsewhere, but they ran a viability case to demonstrate they needed that warehousing and was successful in getting that. So uh, the warehousing comes first and then the rail freight uh, terminal. Now, all I would say uh, is that this is really interesting because this is much more controversial than a, um, a, a, a road or a bridge. And indeed, uh, Gavin Williamson was the MP. Uh, he objected strongly. He did a survey and that discovered that 99% of his constituents opposed the proposal. Not much of a surprise there, I don't think. Uh, he described it as a monstrous, yeah, a monstrous proposal, he said. Um, so they had to overcome that as well. And they had to overcome an alternative site outside the Greenbelt. They had to overcome um, the fact that they were delivering some of the warehousing before the rail freight, uh, which is generally opposed. And they had to overcome uh, a rising star of the Conservative Party, who was very bitterly opposed. So well done to Robert Jendrick and the team around him for this decision. It really is a successful outcome. Very, very helpful. Huge 8,500 jobs, £680 million a year to the regional economy. 
and I think it raises a question just briefly about whether this might be a better route for new settlements. New settlements mm. are having no real success in local plans. The combination of being able to have acquiring compulsory acquisition of land and the planning all together. But I spoke to the Morag uh, Thompson today, one of the solicitors involved in the case. Uh, she did that with uh, Laura Beth at Eversheds. And they say that this process is great for that combination of planning permission and compulsory acquisition, but you end up with a very, very cumbersome order. 135 pages, that's the planning permission. And therefore, if this route is to be used, we need something that doesn't look like a transport and works uh, order. And, and John Rhodes, who was also involved in the case, said uh, he, he's optimistic that this could be a way for doing new settlements, and I and I agree with him. So those are those are my observations. Thanks, Chris. I, I shared that last year, and I've got two two observations of my own to make on this. Aside from the fact it's great to see as a, as a Brummie, great to see a Midlands case uh, feature. Um, firstly, it, it's it's a rather good illustration of the irony. Um, that the case for very special circumstances to justify uh, inappropriate development in the Greenbelt is often a lot more likely to succeed for larger schemes with considerably greater impact on the Greenbelt openness, but obviously commensurate greater benefit, um, than for smaller schemes with considerably smaller impact. Um, it's a, probably inevitable, I would give, given the nature of the test, but, but one which um, this is a very good illustration of. Uh, and secondly, um, Harking back to um, what we discussed, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, about the principle of compliance with the development plan as a whole. There's an interesting reference buried within the decision to the development being, quote unquote, substantially compliant with the relevant national policy statement uh, when it's read as a whole. Uh, paragraph 30 for the geeks amongst you. And it seems to me that's an indication that the Secretary of State took the view, rightly in my opinion, that this principle of compliance with the plan as a whole, notwithstanding potential conflict with specific policies is a principle that applies not only to local development plans but also to national policy statements and infrastructure context so uh, yeah. that's quite a useful indication um we've got a few uh, comments um simon lots and lots of comments uh from from you not not just from people wanting if you wanting you to put a good word into the secretary of state for their particular application it's really interesting questions about the recent announcement so can i encourage you to have a look uh look at through through those um I should say that my um, my screen has frozen so I can see and hear you and I believe everyone can see and hear me but I just have frozen pictures of you and uh, Sasha if, if I can show the camera that is what I'm currently seeing <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder would you like me to photoshop some hair in and then send it back to you uh, more than happy to do that if that would uh, assist Charlie um, Charlie just to say I noticed your name and uh, I had a word with my friends at GCHQ and they're just blocking all your signals now okay oh, that's just uh, not funny Steve Paul has also uh, confirmed that once again that he's not Chris Young now uh, we need to move um, neatly from this to our feature uh, first feature uh, today uh, on the development plan system and Paul um, you're leading on this so can I hand over to you please well plenty technically incompetent that I'd muted myself to stop myself laughing at the previous comments. Sorry about that. No, thanks, Charlie. Um, re regular viewers will know that I'm not a particular fan of the current uh, local plan preparation process. Um, in my view, the 2004 reforms just haven't worked, and it's long past the time where we should undertake a serious rethink. And I'd be astonished if any of uh, our hundreds of uh, participants, any of them, think that the current system is working properly as it should. Um, We've got our extraordinary good fortune to have Simon on the show, uh, and that's obviously, in this, this bit is intended to be a taster for future debates and to ask uh, each of our panellists what they think are the current shortcomings of the local plan system. And then we're going to come back to 
what we think is needed to, to try and resolve that in a later episode. Um, there's a number of different themes that we can throw out that I'm going to ask our panelists in a few moments. Preparation of the plans takes too long. Uh, it's too complex. Some elements won't ask what really is the purpose. Uh, I've read every uh, SEA of every plan I've been involved in, but I suspect I'm, I'm one of a handful of people involved that ever does. And I only ever do because it terrifies me that there's something in there that I've missed. Um, uh, the, the soundness test. The soundness test is so wide ranging and allows anything to be raised by anyone rather than the old focused approach of assume everything's fine and just demonstrate why your little bit that you're objecting to is problematical. Um, so there's a whole series of, uh, of issues that we can raise, an embarrassment of riches for our panellists. So can I start off by uh, asking Sasha, what, what, what do you think is the, the position in terms of the level of scrutiny uh, at examinations? Are you satisfied with it? No, I think it's a real failing. As someone like you, I'm afraid, I'm going to out you and I and Mary of a certain vintage. We grew up in our early Speak days doing, <laughs> doing actual proper examinations, proper investigations, proper inquiries in the form of local plan inquiries. And the difference in level of scrutiny was incredible. Yes, there was a cost in terms of the length of those inquiries. But I wanted to make two points very strongly. I was recently at an examination that will remain nameless and I got pulled aside by the programme officer who asked me to the inspector was happy for me to participate, but didn't want me to be a lawyer and be too legal, <laughs> whatever that was supposed to mean. And that was a pretty serious exam. He didn't have to worry about that though, Sasha, did he really? Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, second, the second issue, which I think is really serious, is just the sheer time. I went, appeared at another examination in the autumn of last year, was promoting a very, very large site for my client, 1200 units and was given two minutes by the inspector to to get to make my statement on behalf of my client. So I just think any of us, I don't think a credible case can be made that the examination, examination public process works anything like the degree it should do when you consider the seriousness of the matters that are under consideration. I'm going to be particularly interested to come back to you when we discuss what we think is going to need to be done to resolve that um, in, in due course. But um, Chris, another issue is the duty to cooperate. And I think we're hot off the press for the Chiltern and South Bucks local plan, uh, where the examiner wrote uh, about an hour and a half ago to indicate that um, uh, it was thought that, that the duty to cooperate had been failed in that case. A another one from the list that Mary was updating with us with a couple of days ago. The duty to cooperate, is it working? No, it, it isn't working. It isn't working at all. And that's just a truism. I mean, it's not even debatable, is it? It's completely hopeless. I remember when Chris uh, Shepley, the, um, the chief planning inspector, retired, he said the duty to cooperate um, was um, the most hopeless invention ever. And it was. It was absolutely hopeless. The Tories came in on a political promise to get rid of uh, regional planning. And I don't know a professional planner who doesn't think that's been the worst decision in post-war planning ever. Okay, and if we can somehow get back to that, we might have some semblance. You could have new settlements done through national statements uh, based on some regional analysis, but you know, it, it's it just doesn't work. It's failing left, right, and centre. My big wish, though, would be um, to take the MPPF, to take paragraph eleven, to take part B, and stop after it says this: strategic policies should as a minimum provide for objectively assessed needs for housing and other uses as well 
there's any needs that cannot be met within neighboring areas and stop don't have these exemptions that allow authorities to go well you know what i don't think we really want to meet our needs uh we've got greenbelt we've got aomb we've got you know surrey heat there are so many reasons why they try and get out of it and then they wonder why their plans fail or their failure to offload any of that to anybody else it is hopeless if we've got a housing crisis and we're going to solve it then each authority meets its own needs unless it can find a neighbor to find it and anything less suggests ministers aren't taking this seriously uh, Charlie, we, we had um, a comment by Wendy Haig uh, a few minutes ago asking about viability being introduced mm. to the local plan process and the changes to PPG last year, as you know, which put viability as something which is examined during the plan process. Yet another thing that's examined as part of the examination process. Is, is, is that problematical at all or is that a good thing? It depends. I mean, I think it can be for a, good, a good thing uh, for what I call sort of conventional type um, proposals, uh, because plainly uh, it's important that the local plan is realistic, particularly in relation to um, the supply of much needed housing. Otherwise, it's just a pipe dream. But at the same time, um, I think that, that it can act as a constraint on ambition. And in particular, harking back to what Chris said um, a few moments ago uh, about um, garden communities. Quite a number of the garden community proposals enshrined within local plans have either failed or been the subject of considerable delay and further um, consideration um, because of concerns about viability. Uh, and in a sense, you know, if you if you have to uh, prove that something will work, <laughs> if that really is the test of of whether uh, an innovation will succeed, you know, we'd all be still living in caves. Um, and the ability to uh, to harness uh, ambition uh, with a degree of commensurate risk is something which I think sometimes the requirement uh, for viability in the plan making context isn't quite fit for purpose. It may be that the answer to that is to leave the viability requirements in for local plan process, but take some of the more ambitious stuff out of that process altogether and into something like a DCO regime, for example, as Chris suggests, that might be one way of doing it. So, so, so Mary, just bringing it all together in, in terms of pulling the threads together, um, overview, is the current system working? No, I don't think the current system is working. Um, I think that um, plans are not something which local politicians think win votes. I don't think it's something that authorities hard pressed with cash put enough resource into. And I think that uh, actually quite a lot of forward planning officers are under a huge amount of strain. And equally, uh, I think that uh, you shouldn't underestimate the task of the planning inspector uh, or inspectors who are tasked with examining um, a, a huge amount of material. Um, I have sympathy uh, with, with those who participate on, on that side. But I, I think actually what's really happening, uh, particularly at the moment, is that where you have authorities with greenbelt land or authorities who cannot meet their own housing supply, for example, Slough's a good example, very tight uh, authority adjoining uh, a Greenbelt authority, there seems to be a real issue on the duty to cooperate. And that is actually in danger of not only bringing plans to a standstill, but also bringing the system into disrepute, because there'll be some of our listeners out there who've actually got perfectly good sites, for example, that they were looking to be released from the Greenbelt or they were looking to be allocated, who now find themselves in, in difficulty because plans are repeatedly now failing on account of the duty to cooperate. 
So I, I really think we need clarity from government, particularly around uh, Greenbelt authorities on how they are to work together um, and uh, in order to bring forward uh, development. I have to say, I admire Simon's poker face during the course of these discussions, or it may just be he's still trying to get the top off his beer. But on that note, I'll hand back to you, Charlie. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. And just before we move on to our discussion with Simon more generally, although we've been talking about plan making in the local development plan context, been quite a few questions and comments about um, the neighbourhood plan process. In particular, a couple of people have, have um, observed um, that the, the requirements for the examiners of neighbourhood plan um, is not a requirement for them to be pins, but they're appointed by, uh, by, by the plan making authority. Um, and a couple of people asked you, Simon, for any insight on what, if you're able to say what the rationale for that was um, by government. And somebody's observed as well, rather interestingly, that those examiners who have previously been PINs uh, inspectors uh, tend to be more robust in their examination of neighbourhood plans, uh, which is quite interesting anecdotal experience. Any, any thoughts that you can share on that, Simon? So this is a really good discussion. It's actually a really timely one uh, about sort of, and I, I'm actually going to ask the previous question as well as this one, because, you know, you're answering a set of questions about how well is local plans working. And I sort of think that we, the government has opened up a set of questions through the white paper, which mm. is open to thinking about solutions to these problems. The only bit I'd say is do listen to how the story looks if you're in local government as well. Yeah. The story looks very different, um, but equally difficult for, for people in local government. And it may have been we've got one of those unstable equilibriums where we've managed to get a system which is equally disliked from by everybody, uh, but maybe the, the least worst of all, all worlds. But there may be things we can do better. I'm sure there are. So look, I'm looking forward to the episode in a couple of weeks time when you actually come up with solutions to this. Mm -hmm. Um, the bit on neighbourhood plans, and it, it, I think you know, it predates my, my time, but um, I think the story here is actually a bit the same story as you've been talking, which is local plans were getting bogged down in process, and there was a desire for a streamlined examination process. Um, now, does that raise questions? Does that push us in other directions? I think it does, but, um, but that's my understanding and my recollection. Thanks, Simon. Um, I've had another screen freeze, and uh, this is now uh, what I get to see of Paul, a, a picture, a frozen picture of Paul uh, downing a glass of wine, which is super. <laughs> One last question before we move on uh, uh, to our discussion with you, um, uh, Simon, is somebody's asked well, what Chris and Paul's views are with a duty to cooperate work for East Riding and Hull. Obviously, it worked out very well for me, as we all know from previous episodes, but any, any thoughts from your perspective? Yeah, yeah uh, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go on that one. Okay. Yeah, but he's uh, wrong. Whatever he says, he's wrong. Yeah, no. <laughs> that worked. It worked. East Riding, uh, encouraged by Paul accepting our evidence, thank you, on the size of the employment <laughs> growth required. Uh, went up to 1800 uh, but they couldn't swallow 1800 so they stuck 400 a year in Hull and that worked well I mean that does work well that was genuine cooperation my, my recollection was very much it was the statement of common ground between my client East Riding and Hull but I'm, I may be wrong Chris maybe there's a little too much Malbec in my hand um, to our interview discussion with Simon, who we've already introduced, and thanks again. So I really appreciate you joining us, particularly given uh, uh, the the busy activity in in the ministry, which you uh, your director, uh, Mary. You're going to lead this discussion, so um, over to you. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Charlie. So two weeks ago, uh, 
Simon, we were urging our audience to uh, evidence the difficulties that they were having in the, the COVID-19 world because we said that government was in listening mode. And it seems to us that in the last 48 hours, there's been an unprecedented response from government. You've plainly been listening and indeed you are now leading uh, with a variety of ministerial statements, new regulations and the like. So if we just start with yesterday's planning update, uh, written ministerial statement, what, what is the main message our listeners should take? from that statement. Thank you, Mary, and thank you everybody for inviting me along. It's uh, lovely to be here. Um, I think there's actually three messages. The first one is we are listening, and I'm just going to dispute on the, uh, the tense there. We are continuing to listen. I don't think this is the end of this. We hope there is there is more things going on and we want to carry on the, the engagement. Um, the second bit is, as my Secretary of State was absolutely clear in Parliament in his oral statement yesterday, we see the development industry as a really powerful force at this time of economic recovery. We want to get that planning and development system back and, uh, and, uh, and, and work and delivering um, because that's essential both for the short term and that's really important about some of the things we said about construction hours and making it work safely on sites but also about delivering that pipe pipeline for growth for the medium term um, so that's the, that's the second the second message and the third message is there are no magic bullets in here, but there are a series of steps where you have to work at every single stage of this. You have to work on the plan making process. You have to work on the decision taking process. You have to work in the inspectorate of things. You have to get into the delivery phase. And we are prepared to work across the board on all those areas to unblock the problems. And is the government's view that uh, digital events, um, whether they be uh, this be a participation through uh, the planning application stage or participation at uh, an appeal stage, is it the government's view that actually these digital events support increased participation in the plan making, uh, well, in, in plan and decision making? So, uh, short answer is. Done well, yes, absolutely so. Um, they, these have a real potential to um, really improve engagement, get different people involved and engaged in processes. But the critical thing is that if done well, and the planning inspector is doing some great work to test out what the processes are. I think the key thing is to do a test and learn approach, to do something, learn and uh, learn what works really well and keep on evolving and get better at it. Uh, we're seeing that happening. Local government's actually been slightly ahead of central government on this. It, local authorities have been doing some great work in their planning committees over the last month. The planning advisory service is doing some great work to cascade the best practice there. And I think what we need to do is see, see very much the same things. I, I'm a civil servant who's not spent all his life in planning, unlike uh, my esteemed panel, and I've worked on other public services, and one of the things that is striking about planning in comparison with other public services is we are a little bit less digital than most, most public services these days. Um, the government has adopted generally an approach of digital by default, that the default approach should be to do things digitally. Um, planning is not quite there, and I think, and, and I hope this is one of those areas where we've got a real opportunity to use a difficult time to get actually um, some long-term innovation in how planning works in in England. We're seeing some of it happening in other parts of the United Kingdom which is great but I think this is a real chance for planning in England. Thank you. You also introduced um, today some 
new temporary regulations covering uh, publicity, uh, both in terms, again, of planning applications and in particular for the publicity requirements for the environmental impact uh, assessments. And, that, and these were issues which have been a concern to uh, everybody at the sharp end. Um, What's the headline points uh, that our audience should take in relation to these new temporary regulations? Well, the headline point is simply that there should be no excuse now for not validating and getting on with processing planning applications. What we've done is two things. One is make it easier to publicise um, things, the, uh, site notices. It's understandable, legitimate concern from local authorities about getting out and doing site notices safely. We've allowed uh, and to use um, publicity requirements where um, uh, local newspapers aren't actually there or where some of the traditional methods aren't there. And we've allowed a bit more of a digital flexibility, but we've allowed a little bit longer, 21 days rather than 14 days, some of the, some of the regulations. And how, how can uh, stakeholders, whether they be developers or planning authorities or, or parish councils or, or neighbourhood forums, how, how can they help um, in the government's endeavour to use digital uh, technology more in, in the planning sector, as you've described? So I think this is really important territory. I think the, the first thing is to engage positively and proactively. My Secretary of State put some important words in his statement yesterday about everyone has a duty to engage proactively and positively in the planning system. And this is, this is a real opportunity to engage. And I really want to encourage everybody to engage constructively, accept people are learning, developing, and things may be diff different in the short run and that we are trying to learn through those processes and so um, key messages is really about that the key the key other messages is sort of if it works well tell your friends share it help it help the message get around where where it's working well where the good practice is and where it's le less working less well come up with solutions and help us find find those solutions thank you and with regard to um SIL payments, uh, you've again um, signalled, we haven't actually got the regulations yet, but you've, you've signalled that um, you intend to take steps to reduce the rigidity of the SIL payment system. What are you trying to achieve by this? Yeah, so we've been, uh, this is part of, um, Mary, your first point about us, us listening. So we've been listening a lot over the last um, month or so to a lot of cases where it seemed to us that there were very short-term big cash payments being triggered because of the way the SIL regulations worked. And it seemed to us that there were there is a case for, um, particularly because in some cases the local authority can't actually um, spend the money uh, on any infrastructure works, that there's a case for deferring those to keep the, the cash in the business and keep particularly the smaller businesses in this case um, uh, carrying on functioning. Um, the problem with Zill was the regulations are quite restrictive on this. So what we've done is say two things. One is we're going to introduce some regulations which will allow deferrals with um, and more payment in instalments and um, uh, without the the interest payments. But what we're also saying is that in advance of those regulations and the, the simple practical reason is these are affirmative regulations, so they have to come through. Well, they only take effect when Parliament has has voted on them, so they will come in over the next bit. What we've encouraged is people to take a pragmatic and sensible approach in advance of those, which I hope will will do some of the, the reassuring um, reassuring there. And what's the magic behind the 45 million turnover figure? So uh, 
so this, this sort of short magic is that this is really about helping small businesses. We're really concerned about the financial position of some of our smaller developers. For those of you who've been around the, the, this industry for a while, you'll know that the 2008 crash was toughest on our smaller development industry. And those of you who've been watching our department for a long time, we have been really pushing um, getting that small bit of businesses back together. So we wanted to have a, a system which really helps them. Um, what we've done is used to try to mirror the eligibility cr criteria for some of the treasury schemes that have been announced more broadly. And that's where the 45 million turnover limit comes from. Are you going to extend the lifetime of permissions? And if so, when? So this is a really good question. And this is one where we have been listening quite a lot. And I've heard this a lot from a lot of people across the development industry, that one of the key things that we should be thinking about is extending planning permissions. It's technically quite tricky to do this. And we've been kicking this one around. Um, and I think what I've heard increasingly, and I haven't found it anybody, and you know, I'm on a call with some brighter legal minds than me, so I defer to them, but we haven't found a way of doing in regulations a way uh, that uh, something that is suitably automatic that actually gives the automatic uncertainty that um that developers need to so that is that is just a practical problem uh, uh, of law we're still exploring we're still kicking this one around you know i'm still listening um and you know watch this space um but let's let's make sure we do have a product that does does what it needs to do rather than just sort of coming up with something which actually is complicated and creates more more problems elsewhere right i i i've got one more question but i'm going to leave it because i'm hogging you um i'm going to turn that to chris chris do you want to ask your question please yeah, so Simon, uh, thank you very much. Just to say, um, I've chatted with you before and uh, the message you give, I think, and you're giving it now, is don't just come to us with problems, come to us with problems and solutions. Mrs Thatcher always said George Younger was her favourite minister because he always came with the solution as well as the problem. So um, I think we hear you loud and clear. You want to know what the solutions are, employ your lawyers, employ your consultants to provide the answer uh, and help you. And I want to hear the evidence as well. So I get quite a lot of people come to me who tell me, Simon, they've got a solution. We should change um, paragraph 37.3 of the NPPF, hypothetical one, I don't come to that one, um, or regulation X. Actually, what you need to do to convince me is what, explain what the problem you're trying to fix first before yeah. you try and tell me how to solve it. Don't assume that I automatically understand the problem. And I've got to be able to persuade my minister um uh, uh that it's actually a real problem and it's got real world consequences we can explain planning has quite an off-putting language and we need to have real world problems uh, that we uh, make the case for sorry chris i'm interrupting you no 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 that's what i mean uh, you know um hopefully you'll come back on the you'll come back on the show and uh, and um we can uh, we can discuss some other things but but my question is about local plans first of all what is the um, department, the Ministry's position on how they should progress. And secondly, um, in the budget this year, uh, it was said at paragraph 1.145, where local planning authorities fail to meet their local housing needs, there will be firm consequences, including a stricter approach taken to the release of land for development. So what's happening in the here and now? And secondly, are you going to take those firmer measures? 
Yeah, so, so look, the, the government is very clear about it wanting a plan-led system, it wants plans in place that, that, are, that are good plans across the country and up-to-date ones. We've set a deadline in, the, uh, in planning for the future, um, which if you haven't read, if I can do a, a sort of plug here, if I'm allowed my 30-second uh, sort of um, advert slot, is this is a serious document that was a product of a lot of engagement across government and set out a serious set of um, uh, questions and areas which we were going to explore and so it's worth reading you know all government documents are worth reading this one's <laughs> uh, 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 no. um, uh, partly, not just because I wrote it um, but uh, so but one of the things we set out is we want plans everywhere by 2023 um, that's gonna be a big challenge for a lot of local authorities but I don't think the message I want to give is the government is not letting up on this this is you know, these difficult circumstances are not a time to go slow on plan production this is a time to get on with, get on with it to get plans in place which are are serious and and I think the other message I want to give is the the way in which we change the regulations is to um, encourage plans to be produced and reviewed regularly so that they are kept up to date our biggest problem Five years ago, when I, uh, when I started this job, was a number of places which didn't have plans. The problem is now lack of up-to-date plans and keeping plans up-to-date remains a, a big challenge. Now, look, local authorities have got some big reasons and uh, uh, problems why they, those plans take, take a while to do it. But I think it's really key to see those plans getting produced and getting kept up-to-date. Um, in answer to your second question, Chris, so this is a reference to the housing delivery test, which we think is a really important innovation in terms of comparing what people plan for with what actually deliver and ensuring that the behaviours are consistent with this. It's a consistent message from the development industry that not always that you know plans shouldn't be on the shelf, plans should be live delivery documents which should actually be governing what, how you take decisions locally um, and we want to ensure that that happens and that there is a continued use of the, those plans and they're kept up to date and decisions are made in line with those plans so uh, we, we over time the plan is for the housing delivery test to uh, to progressively tighten um, I think that there's you know uh, I, I've heard representations from local government that we're going to have to think about that in light of what happens in the economy i think it's too soon to make a call on that personally because we won't know what's actually happening for a little while yet um but i, uh, I think this point about keeping a focus on delivery as well as um, plan making is is absolutely key from our side of things thank, thank you. you charlie you are, you had a related question which has almost been answered but perhaps not quite do you want to do you want to come back on on that last point about the housing delivery test Yes, Simon, Simon we, we were discussing only last week um, how South Oxfordshire and I believe other local authorities have written to the Secretary of State, um, as you'll know, um, seeking flexibility in relation to the five-year supply uh, tests and housing delivery tests in light of the impact of COVID on supply. Um, can they expect a response anytime soon? And do you envisage that there will be a need for some flexibility in relation to either or both the five-year supply and housing delivery tests? Yeah, so I did one of these similar um, sessions with local government last week as part of our, our listening and I got a consistent message, not just from the authorities you've mentioned about the desire for a bit more flexibility on the five-year land supply in particular. And, you know, 
I'm listening to them as much as I am listening to people uh, like you and uh, um, and in other parts of the industry. And I think it's important we do understand that and understand practical practical consequences. The only bit I'd always say on five-year land supply is, uh, and this is sort of having looked at this for a, for a number of years now, is that you fiddle with this at your peril because you can make a change to this and a it then takes a while for planning inspectors to process it and get establish a new pattern of how it's operated and b because everything relates to everything else in the national planning policy framework it can have some consequences in different places and so i, I think there's quite a high bar for me for knowing that but if somebody's got a sensible and serious proposition you know the, I, we'll have to we'll have, have, have a look at these things but i do think the key thing with this is is, is my my secretary of state's message of yesterday and his oral statement about getting getting the housing market back getting the development market back up and running and that will be the context within which i'm sure we'll be wanting to look at any ideas well that takes us conveniently sasha to your question yes simon i wanted to say to you that obviously every time one picks up the paper the economic forecasts are even more bleak than before. Um, do you recognise a need to potentially revisit ENPPF and particularly paragraph 11 to try and make it more, more development friendly in the light of the economic catastrophe that we might be facing? So, gosh, there's, there's, there's a, you're inviting me into speculation there, which is always an, uh, always a, ter a, a dangerous place for civil servants to get into. But I think it's a really good question, though, about what is going to be the need for planning to undertake in response to the current economic circumstances. I sort of think it's a much bigger question than paragraph 11 of the MPPF. I think it's a bigger question. You know, we're seeing um, quite a lot of questions being raised about the future of the British High Street um, and what needs to happen to that. We're seeing questions being raised about actually the sort of modes of transport that people are operating and how people are working. Um, we are seeing questions being raised about what type of housing people want uh, as, as this. I think it's too soon to work out where those trends are going there. But I think the, the question for, for those in the planning community is to what extent do we want to react to the, those changes or do we want to be uh, leading those changes and shaping those through, um, through active policies and things. And one of the reasons why I think it's so important that local plans are in place is to have active policies which proactively and up to date are thinking about those issues uh, and uh, which are responding to those um, uh, those challenges with positive policies. Um, do I think the NPPF might need to change? A lot of things I suspect are going to need to change, but who knows what they are yet? I'm not yet at the at the uh, at the space of uh, space of thinking about that. Thank you, Simon. Paul, do you have a, your your question? Yeah, yes, I do, um, Simon, and we have a habit in this show sometimes of asking questions that we answer ourselves, so I'm going to do that in a moment, and I think it's probably the easiest of the questions that I've asked, because I know what the answer is. Um, but before doing that, Simon, you've tempted me to, uh, to add to your inbox tomorrow, because earlier today I was turfing out the information from back in 2008, where the power to renew permissions was uh, brought out under exactly the same legislative framework, uh, with the guidance which dealt with EIA, etc., which... It's probably worth a read because it was done quite quickly at that stage, but uh, I won't ask you about that. You've already answered that question. No, my question was about um, standard methodology, which uh, we've got a promised revision that's sitting in the wings somewhere uh, and is no doubt sitting at the bottom of a very large inbox um, on your desk. I appreciate you won't be able to say, say when that the new methodology is going to be revised, but I wonder if you could just indicate 
how radical it might be given the circumstances which we find ourselves now? Is it all bets are off or is this just a minor tweak we're looking at? So I think uh, it, I'm not sure I've got a good answer to that one. Um, the government's been pretty clear that it, the ambition for the aggregate is to have a standard methodology which is consistent with its aspirations for housing supply of a market that can sustain delivering 300,000 homes a year. So it's going to need to make some changes to do that. Um, there's a really interesting sort of set of choices here about sort of what, what do we mean in terms of distribution, what do we mean about sort of um, the, the data and stability and planning in nature. One of the things that has been disappointing for me over the last couple of years is the numbers have moved rather more than I've, uh, I would have hoped. Um, and as a result, it's provided difficult planning framework for any local authority who's trying to produce a plan. They don't know where the data is moving. Can I do more to provide certainty? So I think that's, those, those questions are up for grabs. Um, and I, I guess the question is a bit, you know, you, you can have a very, um, we can change the formula a lot, but the results and, the, and you know, what, what matters is what the results are and what the results are for individual places. Um, and you could change the formula in all sorts of directions, but if it produced the same results in the places, what's, what's that? And I think it needs, it needs a bit of thinking. There's some good ideas out there. We've seen some good ideas coming in from various places. Um, I think the, the key things that for me though are about sort of getting um, it based on solid data, which is uncontroversial. So one of the things we tried to do this time around is base it on national statistics data, which is robust at a local level, because otherwise you end up in problems. Um, but if there's other national statistics data that is valid at local level, great, let's, 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 um, let's use that. And, and the other bit is something which um, people can look at and think, Think it buys a sort of basic test of um, reasonableness at the local level and you know it's based on reasonable conditions and our principle that we had in the past bit which was you started with population projections and you loaded more where prices were high seemed to you know get past that test of reasonableness um, but I think could there be other methods out there that could do that I'm sure there, there, there could be um, but I've not got a uh, I've not got an answer for that you on precisely what that will be. A wise man told me very recently it's all about politics, so I shall look forward to seeing what the result is. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Simon. Um, and uh, Charlie, I'm sorry that we've slightly over over um, stretched ourselves in terms of time. May I just ask one final question, which is this? COVID nineteen is likely to lead to changes. I suggest in um, schemes which already have a permission uh, likely to lead to changes in design and perhaps some scheme layouts would now be a good idea to reconsider the ability to alter planning permissions and might this also extend to some more flexibility for DCOs? So, so Mary, this is a really interesting question. So I have been focusing on the immediate questions and the immediate priorities that we have heard from the industry. I think this is a really interesting one as we go further through this. And as Paul says, and, and Sasha say, we've got different economic uh, environment coming up with and are there further changes needed? I think we're going to, the answer is we're going to be continuing to listen to this. The bit 
I just want to just sort of respond to you particularly as your point on design, um, because I probably should have said more about this in that if there's one top message I want to get from the, the out of the department at the moment is the real importance that we attach to high quality design and getting better, better design because that gets communities bought in. Um, the Building Better Building Beautiful Commission earlier this uh, year was a serious moment. It is a serious report and um, my Secretary of State has given some very positive and warm um, comments on that. And getting better designed development is a big part of our agenda at the moment. So I wanted to perhaps finish on that note, Mary. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon. Over to you, Charlie. Thank you, and, and I'm going to exercise the chair's pocket to ask one last burning question, if you don't mind, Simon, which is which is this: um, everybody was who's, who's interested in the planning appeals process was um, very interested uh, and welcomed the, the ministerial statement published yesterday and PIN's um, near simultaneous statement. Um, certainly, amongst the lawyers, some people have um, observed that at face value there's a difference of emphasis so the written ministerial statement for example says the government's expectation is that save in exceptional circumstances the default method will be judicial inquiry during the current period and that it expects uh, digital events to be taking place by mid-june other than in exceptional circumstances um, whereas the pins response says that the collective number of virtual hearings or digital hearings, inquiries and examinations. So both EI, uh, not exam examinations, hearings and inquiries collectively for the whole of May and June will be 20. Um, and it, it might be thought that if by mid-June um, this is to be the norm, save in exceptional circumstances, there'd be more than 20. So I just wanted to really understand from you, Simon, if you're able to, is it the government's understanding that the planning inspectorate uh, intend to give effect to the expectations set out in the WMS? So ab absolutely, uh, so I think there's a bit of overreading of, of, of text going on here. The, the, the intention is clear, the planning inspector is signed up to this, um, we worked with them on the on the statement and I pick you up, there were two, two written ministerial statements, one regulations and uh, about five punches of guidance yesterday, so we, we did even manage more than you, you said. But um, no, the planning inspectorate are, uh, were involved in this process, they are, um, they're involved with the, the implementation. There's a lot of practical work they've got to do. You heard from Sarah last week about some of the challenges they are facing at the moment. So those are those are big and real, real ones about doing that. But we are working together on this, we are exactly in one place, there is no gap between between us and uh, and actually uh, you know they've done some great work in the planning inspector yeah. doing it at, at pace up this way um, and they are learning the benefits of the technology that we invested in them last year that's really really good to hear and I'm sure everybody will welcome that and uh, be delighted that the uh, the the intention set out in the WMS will will be executed and um, I'm sure everybody welcomes that so thank you and thank you Simon once again um, for for uh, participating in this and for the really really helpful and informative uh, insight you've given uh, during a particularly busy week so that's great um, next I, I do apologise I, I I wasn't going to turn up if I heard it was all Spurs and Gooners fans here if somebody uh, takes I'm, a screenshot, I'm not coming back for that. If someone <laughs> takes a screenshot of this and sends it back to my West Brom fans back in Birmingham, I think I'll be lynched when I return. Getting a session, we're not fans. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just taking taking the Mickey out of you. Um, praise of the week, Chris. Over to you. 
Yeah, well, uh, uh, praise of the week, uh, too, really. First of all, uh, the first one goes to Paul's wife, Ursula, for that haircut. Uh, that <laughs> is the best lockdown haircut I've seen uh, by a spouse. So uh, the fabulous uh, Ursula has done that. I've got an inquiry in June uh, up by Paul's house, and I'm going to pop into um, Ursula's barbershop. Uh, she's Always got three you. sons as well, so uh, she's had a bit of practice before she touched that bonnet. <laughs> um, we need to allow a couple of hours. The week is to uh, Robert Jendrick, Secretary of State, and uh, that isn't just because I've got a number of outstanding uh, Secretary of State recovered appeals. <laughs> it it makes no difference, Chris. Makes no, no, difference. No, no, no. Genuinely, because he seems to be a man who gets it. You know, he gets that it's important to send strong messages to deliver. I think he's quite clear that the department is open to listening to the development industry and delivering, uh, you know, what is required to solve the problems. It's been a really impressive flurry of activity in the last couple of days. I dare say Simon's had to do a lot in the two mm. weeks before that. Um, it's just really, really impressive. So uh, my praise of the week is for the Secretary of State. Uh, it was the Secretary of State for Transport who dealt with the PCO, but this is everything else that Robert. Gendrick uh, is doing so that's his praise uh, and thank you Simon because obviously it's also to the team all around him I don't know how on earth we've managed to get you as a guest on the show in just the fourth week I don't know how we're going to top this but I think I can announce next week's guest is Ronaldo <laughs> <laughs> I think there's room there's room above me before you get to Ronaldo Chris. <laughs> you're right and Nudge of the week. Uh, Mary, who are you nudging? I'm nudging the Department of Transport for pushing uh, local uh, highway authorities, planning authorities, councils generally to uh, reallocate road space, in particular to reallocate road space for cyclists and pedestrians. And can I also make a plea for more cycle parking, please? So, yeah. well done. Paul, um, what's coming up in the week ahead? Yeah, next, next week um, we're going to look at Greenbelt issues. There's been a number of different cases that have come out in the last three or four weeks in respect of Greenbelt, uh, one very recently. So we're going to talk about Greenbelt, whether it's uh, an old friend to preserve or a constraint to development. And again, um, as Mary promised last week, we have had a very special guest this week. Thank you again, Simon. And we've got a special guest coming uh, next week. Um, and can I steal a bit of your thunder, Charlie? Because this is the week that my aunt died of C19. So oh. you'll probably see the little rainbow there. So the, you've got five senior barristers and Simon, senior civil servants, all giving their time for nothing. The aim of this is to in engender a, a donation. So please, please donate. Please do. I reiterate that. Um, you go to the link by now. Uh, just a reminder for those who may not have got the invite but seen it on LinkedIn. It's the Just Giving COVID Clap for Our Carers campaign. If you Google that, it will come straight up. Um, if you prefer to donate to local charity choice, that's your prerogative. But uh, we do urge you to, to donate. It's really important, as you just heard from that very personal story. Um, thanks again um, to all participants, the panellists, the guests. Thank you all for turning, turning up. We're looking forward to seeing you same time, same place, same ID, same passcode, uh, possibly different beer. Thursday, 21st <laughs> of May, um, uh, five o'clock. Um, and uh, please don't forget, if you haven't already, if you're on LinkedIn, please follow our LinkedIn page because we'll put all our details up there. Uh, have a good evening. Take care and see you next week. Cheers. Thank Cheers. you, Simon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Simon.
Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>